I found even going back to Sydney when I go to visit my mum, it's just kind of everyone's moving from A to B, constantly mm. up there. Everyone's mm. always coming from somewhere and going somewhere. But here I like it because you can be going somewhere, but you can stop along the way. Mm. I can be, you know, it almost seems like time's a little bit slower here, but not, yeah. not in the way that it's backwards, but in the way that just everyone's keen to stop and have a chat. Whereas in Sydney, everybody's ploughing through constantly. They won't stop and have a chat. They won't stop to smell the roses. Whereas here, it's like you can smell the roses every day if you want. Yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that, but uh, the, oh, the, the West Coast. I'm Emily Kyle, and this is Local. This is a conversation with Launceston-based multidisciplinary artist. Paul Eggins. Paul exhibited the first iteration of his show, Drugs, at Bank in October. As always, let's start at the beginning of you. Uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in, I think it's the Royal Women's Hospital in Sydney. And I grew up just south of Sydney in a place called Caringbar. Hmm. And... Yeah, it's uh, in the area of the Sutherland Shire, which got notoriously known for the Cronulla riots and there were the race riots that happened, but it's where I'm from, unfortunately. And Did you engage with those race riots? No, no, I did <laughs> this not. This is your chance. Yes, I had nothing to do with them and people encouraged me to, which was the oh, scary God. part. I was only 16 and I was a volunteer lifeguard at the time and the whole riots came from uh, people beating up lifeguards and so a lot of lifeguards had nothing to do with it. I think all of them, no lifeguards had anything to do with it but all these superheroes decided to take on the role of beating up anyone of any sort of race that wasn't white and that was kind of the first time in my life that I realised I did not want to live there. I wanted to leave that area. It's been a number of years since I've thought about Cronulla and all of its glory. Um, That must have been horrible. Um, Yeah, it was. um, You know, just like anything as well, the media blew it completely out of proportion, but it was a terrible thing, no matter how badly the media portrayed it. Um, The media did do a lot of fear-mongering for it, which... At the time, I never realised, but it was only a year or two ago I watched a 60-minute segment on the race riots and I was blown away at how misinformed the entire thing was and that that segment, that hour special was broadcast on television and it was all completely fabricated lies. And it was a really interesting thing to see how the the Murdoch media portrays Mm. different races and how it kind of made people have this perception of what happened at the Cronulla riots when it had, there was nuggets of truth in it, but the majority of that segment was lies and that's what a lot of Australia came to understand as the Cronulla riots. It's interesting to me that, you know, we're having this conversation now about that event in our country's history uh, when in America, in, in this moment, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're going through the Biden-Trump saga and, and there is so much misinformation in the media 
And I think it's only been, I guess, in the past year. I mean, in, we know that, that the media isn't necessarily to be trusted, yeah, but to yeah. what extent yeah. is hard to say. Well, I've never looked into any of that stuff. I've never been into journalism. I've dabbled in the idea of politics, but I've always been like, nah, there's, you're never knowing the truth. You're only knowing mm. what you get told. But then when there's things that you know happened and, you know, for with the riots, I got multiple text messages from people saying the reasons why the riots were going to happen and these text messages that circulated and that everyone got them, everyone the week leading up to them, everyone that I knew got these text messages, they just did the rounds. And then hearing and seeing so many alternatives to that being mm. broadcasted through the media, I think from that I just at a young age just began to not trust the media and kind of took, a, took a step back and... <laughs> Here we are doing Tuned some out. very vague version of media. <laughs> yeah, wow, my gosh. I just feel like I've been taken back into my my teenage past. I can't imagine. And so you were in that area for quite a while then, most of your life? Um, up until I was about 20. When yeah. I moved out of home, I moved to Cronulla. And that was a different experience living there itself. I worked as a learner swim instructor and I was working in the film industry at that stage. And so I did a lot of surfing and a lot of diving, a lot of fishing. So I've been a coastal baby my whole life and I still, a part of me resonates with that deeply. But yeah, it was interesting living in Cronulla and, but then moving away from it in my early 20s and moving around and trying different places, you know, just filling up the car and driving to Melbourne and seeing what's going on there and being like, oh, no, drive up to Queensland, see what's going on up there. And it's like, oh, no. (laughs) And I kept going to these places, but none of them I liked. And then I finally came, I was like, oh, may as well try a different island before I do the long (laughs) haul to the other side of Australia. And then I moved to Tassie and just fell in love with it and just decided this is a pretty nice place. This is kind of out of the way, if that makes sense. It's almost like mm. it's, people always say it's 10 years behind here, but I think that's what I like about it. It's, they're not trying to keep up. Yeah. What, what I actually think is so interesting in my limited experience of uh, Tasmania, I'm still yet to visit Hobart, yeah. uh, but there is, um, there's this incredible feeling that, yes, yes, we are, here 10 years behind but it, it also feels like you know we're, we're five or 10 years in the future yeah it yeah. feels a little bit like we're living these two different timelines simultaneously yeah. uh, and that's a really interesting experience you know when you're in when you're in uh, Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne it's so it's so modern all the time it's this modern new all the time but here that you get to sort of come up for air it's a different version of modern the way I like to look at that yeah the modernist kind of idea is that I found even going back to Sydney when I go to visit my mum it's just kind of everyone's moving from A to B constantly Mm. up there everyone's Mm. always coming from somewhere and going somewhere but here I like it because 
you can be going somewhere, but you can stop along the way. Mm. I can be, you know, it almost seems like time's a little bit slower here, but not yeah, not in the way that it's backwards, but in the way that it's just everyone's keen to stop and have a chat, whereas in Sydney everybody's ploughing through constantly. They won't stop and have a chat. They won't stop to smell the roses, whereas here it's like you can smell the roses every day if you want. It's the journey, not the destination. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can uh, go back for a minute, what was it like growing up in Sydney? What were, what were your parents like? Yeah, like I feel like I had a pretty lucky childhood. Um, a lot of my friends that are artists seems to have had bad childhoods, but, you know, my dad was working class. He's a stainless steelsman and welder. So he was a tradie. My mum worked part-time in a jewellery shop and it was just a kind of stock standard upraising. Like we weren't rich, we weren't poor, we had food on the table every night. There was times when we had to budget. But I started working at the age of 13 and so... That's illegal, Paul. Nah, I don't think... Mm-mm. Is it? I don't know. I thought it was 14. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was actually was 12 14? when I started. But I did <gasps> work. I did, that was work experience, though. That was something <laughs> that the school organised... Well, my mum organised it for me and the school got on board with it and then it was for... Because that time I was just obsessed with cameras and photography and filming and I had my mum's old film camera and I had one roll of film and I completely stuffed it up because I didn't understand <laughs> how to use a camera. And But I just started reading books and my dad had a really old VHS camera, like film camera, but I wasn't allowed to use it because it was this old thing that back in the day it cost him an arm and a leg, but at the time I wanted to use it, it was obsolete, but he still had this oh. idea that it was a very expensive piece of machinery. <laughs> and... I was just obsessed with it. So then this guy came into my mum's jewellery shop that was a regular and my mum and him were just chatting and then she kind of said like, oh, yeah, my son, he just won't leave my dad alone, like won't leave David alone. He just wants to use his camera. And the guy was like, oh, just send him down to my place. I run a film business. Like I've got plenty of cameras, old ones that he can just have a play around with. So I went down and did work experience. I just kept showing up week after week until the point where he was like, We've got oh. this, like, job. You don't have to do anything. The camera was set up on a tripod. It's had to press record, wait. People would dance, leave the stage, stop recording. The next group would come on, start recording, stop. So he's like, you can do that if you want. So I got paid to do it and then I just worked my way up the ranks there and it was good. It was really good starting to learn the value of money at such a young age but it was mm. bad in the sense then that I had to fend for myself to an extent. <laughs> I was having to <laughs> buy my own clothes and my mum said, oh, you want those expensive shoes, you'll have to buy them. And it's like, well, I don't want to buy them. So <laughs> yeah, you I would just keep them. the cheap shoes. <laughs> but it made me stop nagging my parents for stuff. And I think that probably would have made their life a bit easier. And by the time I was in, when was it, grade nine, I think my parents kind of realised I wasn't, I was doing good in school. I was always good at maths and computers, but I just wasn't doing that well. Mm. Um, And so they would let me take weeks off at a time to go down to Canberra to film the ballet or to go and just travel around with work and just work. And it was great. I think I matured a bit too quickly, but in a different kind of way. 
I think I missed out on a lot of childhood though as well from that because I worked a lot of weekends, but I chose to. There's something really, really special about supportive, loving parents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, wow, for them to to support you in what you wanted to do and and see see your talent, see see your um what you were good at. I didn't think it was so much a talent. I kind of almost saw it as sport, like. I never was into teen sports. I used to do swimming when I was younger and then that was kind of it. I played footy for a year and I was just like, no, I don't want other people depending on me for this sort of stuff. Oh, brutal. (laughs) But (laughs) sports, you practice and you keep practicing as a team and you get it right and you keep getting better and better and that's just kind of how I saw filming. It's like I knew I saw these older guys that had been doing it for years and I was like, oh, they do it good. Like (laughs) I want to get that good at this. Like I want to be able to do that. And I just stuck with it. Yeah, you were committed. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of what my growing up revolved around of from the age of 12 onwards kind of. But before then it was just, yeah, very stock standard, just <laughs> swam like once or twice a week. and The Australian dream? Mm. Living near a beach, I don't know a what the Australian dream is. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me is like this, um, you know, a middle-class comfortable family somewhere close to the beach, uh, barbecues and salt and sand and, ah, uh, that's, yeah, I don't know, I something guess about if that's the Australian dream, yeah. That's how I imagine Not heaps of barbecues, but enough barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> so you had this, you know, you had this fascination with water or this uh, perhaps not fascination but um, enjoyment. Yeah. And now you're in Tasmania and you found yourself close to water. Yeah. So when I moved to Tasmania, I moved to Launceston and then, you know, it being in the middle of nowhere, I liked the gorge there. I worked as a swim teacher and now just recently I have got myself a place up on the northeast coast. I've put on my big boy pants and (laughs) put myself into 30 years of debt, but... (laughs) It's worth it to be somewhere beautiful and out of the way and just kind of not quite the middle of nowhere, but the middle of nowhere on the side of the ocean. Can you uh, describe your spot? Um, So it's a little coastal town called Beechford. It's 15, 20-minute drive from Georgetown, which is on the northeast coast, not the east coast of Tasmania, but along the top, along the north eastern side of the Tamar and yeah it's just a little cozy town in 2016 the census called that there was 96 people living there amazing there's no shops there's no petrol stations <laughs> um there's where is the closest shop uh Georgetown how far away is that 15 20 minutes drive wow and yeah. at least it's not an hour yeah that's it it's 45 minutes to Launceston so it still is <laughs> close to everything and there's a little community hub there there's actually a really good community every Friday night they have Friday knockoffs when everyone gets back to town where a lot of people work in the farms around there some people work in Launceston there's a lot of retired people up there a bunch of them just go down to the community hub and have beers on a Friday Uh. and so everyone kind of knows everyone and everyone works together to get things done like they just got a new community hub built because everyone got together they have like little benches at the beach and oh, that's yeah, it's beautiful. Great. I imagine that it would be the kind of place, oh, you know, 
many years ago when there used to be those dance halls yeah. and everyone would get <laughs> yeah. together in the dance halls and line dancing or what have you. I haven't figured out the history of it, the community hall there, but it's next to an oval, so it wouldn't surprise me if it was an old rugby club or something like that. Oh, wow. Because back in, oh, I should know because I've read it a couple of times now, I think it was in the 80s there was a shop there and it closed. <gasps> what the, kind of shop? Just a corner shop. Uh, corner shop to get your uh, milk and bread. Dag with dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, all the good stuff. Uh, so how long have you how long have you been there for? Um, I got the place in June. I don't want to speak positive of such a negative thing, but it was all thanks to COVID. Oh, well, you know, uh, there's positives and negatives yeah. for everything. Yeah. Someone dies, you get a shack. Yeah. I don't, oh, that's a bit dark. That's a bit dark. But, yeah, um, and now the next step is I've just kind of gone through the hoops and now I need to find the right way to go about it, but I know that I can build a container home on there. So that's going to be, I guess, my next project, have it be get builders to do it. I would like to do it myself, but I don't really want to ruin the one house that I make <laughs> and then have this idea of having this beautiful house that leaks, but... Mm. Um, build a house so I can where I've got it where I'm going to put it on the land I'll be able to look out over the ocean and up there on the land as well I've got my big shed which is bigger than the shack that's on there at the moment and that's your studio that's space my studio yeah and there's also a caravan with no wheels on it so I've got a <laughs> weekender of people all my friends want to come all my family want to come and stay it's good oh gosh it seems like you've got it all figured out it sounds beautiful yeah it's really something different it's yeah five minute walk to the beach in one direction then five minutes into the bush in the other direction and wow. it's, it's great and so you know you came to uh queenstown with a show with your show yeah. have you been to queenstown before i've been through it i've never stayed for longer than 24 hours in queenstown before so this is I guess you could say I was visiting before, but here this time I've stayed in Queenstown and it's, yeah. What's your impression? What, what What's your takeaway? I think if I hadn't got my place out at Beechford, I would have been completely blown away by the sense of community because wow. this place, it's got that same vibe of Beechford of everyone kind of knows each other, everyone's kind of looking out for each other. And I've experienced that just being here a week, like, the same people have been popping into the galleries to say hello and see how I'm going and kind of checking in on me, just being like, yeah, are you enjoying yourself here? Like, and it's nice. Like, I don't think you would get that in a place like, you know, Launceston or Hobart, just the people that go to the cafe every day just decide to come across the road to have a little chin wag. It's great. And, you know, they ask me what I've been up to and I tell them, they're like, oh, you went there, you should go to this place as well. And, it's kind of everyone's got this little trove of information about the town that they're all more than keen to share and I'm sure they're not telling me all the good spots but they're telling me enough to get me on nice adventures. You know, it's something that has really struck me is that um, local residents have told me about some unbelievable places um, but also visiting artists have discovered places that I've never, like I, I no one's told me about. I didn't know yeah, that they okay. were there. And it kind of blows you away because everyone has 
Yes, the locals have been here for a long time and they, they know all of the good spots. But then visiting artists come into town and and they're seeing it with fresh eyes. They're seeing it for the first time. And um, it's it's so wonderful to have that mix of energy that this is so exciting, uh, whereas locals say, oh, yeah, you know, it's there. Yeah. Um, but then also local knowledge of actually, you know, when they become excited, when they finally go to a place that they haven't been to before and yeah. find something really special, it, it feels really good. There is an incredible sense of community here. Yeah. yeah, it's very evident. Whereas, you know, back in Sydney, if people had a, people don't tell people where to go, like if tourists were coming into town, people were like, oh, you'll find it on Google, like <laughs> don't bother us, like leave us alone. Whereas here, yeah, like everybody wants to tell you a cool place to go, so they're the ones that told you to go there kind of thing. Well, it all feeds into the story that you'll take back to wherever you go back yeah. to, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, can we talk a little bit about uh, the show that you brought here? Yeah, so drugs. Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> the things that people love to hate. Oh, so ominous. <laughs> oh. It was pretty incredible coming in. I, I unfortunately wasn't able to uh, go to the opening, but... Um, I actually preferred that uh, Henry and I came in when it was nice and quiet yeah. and we could well, just say hello. It's for the art, it's not for the party. Yeah. <laughs> um, these, yeah, they, they, they felt like these these totem poles, this uh, godlike honouring of these <laughs> illicit substances. Uh, would you like to maybe speak about the sculptures? Um yeah, so I made a series, there's nine of them, and they're boxes that at first glance just look like regular pharmaceutical boxes that if you get prescribed medicine by a doctor or even going to a chemist looking for Panadol or something, you'd be you'd think that these works would fit in with them and they're just something from the chemist. But then when you actually look at them, you realise they're all illegal substances marketed in the same way that pharmaceuticals are. What was the, where did this thought come from? You know, these things, if used right, can be medicines that if they're administered properly that, you know, we still don't know the right way to use these chemicals, so we need to research them more. In mm. Australia there's been very little research done on them, but over in Europe and even in America there's been a bit more research done, especially by MAPS, which is an organisation doing great research into some of these chemicals but there's still no right way to do them so the idea came that these are medicines but then the follow-up idea was that we're being told that they're not we're being told that these are bad things and everyone that goes to school in Australia goes through the drug education program mm. where it's just say no like the cool kids don't do drugs like it's cool <laughs> to say no like only bad people do drugs and drugs will make your life bad. Mm. And that was disproven in the 80s. There's so many reports done um, time and time again that prove that this education program that we have doesn't work. And so, you know, it's time kind of to rethink this program and, you know, look at these chemicals, not saying that they're all good, like, you know, 
a psychedelic trip can put someone into psychosis and completely ruin their life. But if there's somebody that's trained to be able to identify the warning signs of these things and be able to say, like, no, this person can't take this chemical for these reasons, Mm. but then someone else can come along and they say, oh, you're suffering from this mental illness, take mm, this and that's medicine. that's a big part of it, it, you know, that they can sway things to be positive or negative as any sort of pre-existing uh, mental illness. So, um, you know, it's so complicated because we've only just recently been talking about uh, trauma having an impact on DNA and mm. trauma being passed down through families and that's yeah. not necessarily... Uh, not just through families, but also massive, horrible events, and, yeah. you know. And um, that's that's something to think about as well when we're talking about mind-altering substances. Uh, it, it, it just, it, all of these things are so, so new yeah. um, when in reality they, they, they shouldn't be. Well, at the end of the day, they're not new. Mushrooms have been around for a very long <laughs> time. <laughs> But it's only in the past decade that science has kind of proved that these things are great for treating PTSD. Like, mm. you know, you can medicate some of PTSD, but you're just blocking it out. You're not making them come to terms with it. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, sort of the commodifying of these uh, spiritual and or um, pharmaceutical-like treating of illicit substances. So there are a lot of people that are, are, are against these experiences, but I do feel like there are large groups of people that are um, playing them up, yeah. commodifying them in a way that is unhealthy. Yeah, um, definitely. And at the end of the day, you know, you hear about these and read about these um, modern-day shamans that are self-appointed shamans that, you know, have never been somewhere like South America and they just start growing the ingredients for ayahuasca in their backyard and then mm. they get to a point with their own comfort level that they just start selling it to people. People start paying to come to them and dose up on it. And, you know, that's all well and good because these things should be accessible for people. But once again, it's I feel like that's a pretty strange way to go about it that, you know, the experience itself is priceless but yet somebody's using it to exist off of and like, yeah, they've grown it themselves and they've put that time and energy into it. But at the end of the day, they don't know. I'm guessing they don't know. Like you read those stories. Um, There was a guy doing it in America and he had done hundreds of ceremonies and then somebody came through and completely flipped their lid and killed themselves a few days later. And it's like, well, is he responsible for that? Should he have known the warning signs or was this person mentally stable beforehand or did the experience do that to him? Like So the uh, pharmaceutical boxes that you have made that you've been showing, they're, um, they are essentially the size of uh, what you would find in a chemist. Yeah, I've based some of them on actual to scale models of, you know, Panadol packets and things like that. So if there were blank boxes, they would look and feel the exact same as a blank Panadol box and things like that. So, yeah. We were talking uh, the other day about scale. Yep. And this being the first iteration. Yep. Um, 
I'm really, I'm really personally excited to see where this goes in a, in a bigger way. Um, can you describe what, what you're thinking about these, these sculptures? Um, so what I've made a draft of is a giant box, pretty much. <laughs> it's a to-scale model of the LSD sculpture from the show, but it's two and a half or just on 2.2 metres tall and it's four point something metres long and 1.2 metres deep and it's just, it towers over you when it's just, it's never left my studio. It's just sitting there in the studio taking up space now. Can you get inside it? Yeah, I've got old art stored inside of it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a store, it's become a little storage nook. But, um, to live in the LSD packaging, <laughs> what would that be, what would that be like? Oh, it would. I, I imagine it would be quite intimidating to see all nine sculptures at that size. Yeah, because you know, while the majority of people that have come into the show, their reaction is the same. They look at it, and when they realize what they're looking at, everybody has a little chuckle to themselves. <laughs> But then when they look around, they're like, especially having the magic mushrooms closest to the front door, people walk in, they're like, oh, yeah, magic mushrooms. <laughs> then they look around and they see it contextualised in the same space as meth and alcohol. Mm. they kind of like, well, hold on, what what is going on here? And it's because everybody is perspective, everybody sees these things differently and everybody has used these things differently themselves if they've used any at all. And so having all nine towering over you in a space you're going to be confronted by it it's kind of in your face there you can't deny that it's there and you know it'll affect some people differently like I know personally people that will see some of these things and be quite uncomfy by the sight of you know a two and a half meter tall pharmaceutical crystal meth box out there in the open. I mean, immediately the first thing that comes to mind is this, um, you know, a government-funded and controlled, um, isn't that the fear that I think that so many people um, start dabbling in uh, recreational drug use because they're, A, uh, trying to block something off, um, and B, trying to be their own person, enjoying their own life. There is this sort of pushback thing that happens when you talk about drug cultures. Um, but then you seeing them in these, these massive uh, government-controlled boxes, that, that's, the, that's the fear to be totally controlled by a large group or conglomerate or agency. Mm. Um, yeah, I imagine it would be quite startling. Yeah. And, you know, that is the next stage for this project. Like I've got the show now, this show, and I want to take it to different places and present it to different audiences. But then ultimately I want to have it so big that you can't escape it, that it's not big as in sense like the hype around it but the actual physical scale of it that, you know, it's, in an art festival somewhere. It's, oh, God, it's a drug maze. Yeah, pretty much. Like <laughs> that, you know, you can try and avoid it, but it's going to be there in your corner of your eye no matter where you're standing from. Like it's it's there. 
Oh, it'd be amazing to see it as a skyscraper. <laughs> <laughs> Could be build a city based on trucks. This is your first show uh, with with sculptural work. Yes. Yep. What were you working on before that? Um, did painting and drawing and did some printing as well, but I never did a show of the printing stuff I was doing. That's just in the personal archives that no one will ever see. Uh, when you're dead, there'll yeah. be a retrospective. <laughs> it'll, it'll probably just go mouldy in the shed. <laughs> Nobody will look inside the giant LSD box and find no, it. <laughs> no one would dare. And um, we spoke about your uh, colour palette the other day uh, in regards to yeah. your paintings. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I guess. if you <laughs> yeah, Pink, yellow, green, blue and orange. And how did you come up with that grouping of colours? Um, it all started out when I was doing very geometric shape-based work and I just I started working with pink, yellow and red. I have my primary colours and my primary colours are pink, yellow and green, but it started as pink, uh, red, yellow and green. And those colours just for me went really well together. And I was doing all of my drawings, all of my art, with those three colours and then I was just drawing objects at that stage. I wasn't drawing scenes. I wasn't drawing landscapes or anything. I was just drawing objects. So then when I started to put these objects into spaces, I was like, oh, okay, well, I need a background to differentiate. Is that the word? The foreground to the background. So I started using blue, orange and purple as they were contrasting these colours. And the purple was quite dark. All the other colours, I should add, were lighter, bright versions of these. And that's where I dropped the red and picked it up into pink. Because pink is just, in essence, light red. <laughs> and so I had a really light, bright, colourful palette. But this purple was very yucky being a light purple. It didn't sit. And the dark purple really brought the mood down. So then I got rid of the purple and just had blue and orange for background pink, yellow and green for the foreground and that's kind of how it started and then eventually I stopped drawing foreground, background and just drew full pages so all the colours meshed in together and then purple every now and again it makes its way back into some of my art but mm. I try and avoid every time I put it in I don't like it mm. but then yeah I just kept those colours going and I've never really looked back and you're kind of the first person that's asked me about this colour palette in a long time and <laughs> it's, I haven't second-guessed myself for it, but it's kind of like, yeah, I've been doing this for so long now. It's just kind of my palette. Like it's, yeah, it's, a, it's Paul's palette. Yeah, I don't have red paint. I don't have, <laughs> I have purple paint by mistake, thanks to Duolux. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't have purple pencils or anything like that. I don't have red textures. I just have pink, yellow, green, blue and orange of everything. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is just, this is what you like. This is what yeah. you like to look at and what works well in, in, in your mind. Not that I'm saying it's just in your mind. <laughs> Um, and it's amazing. It, it, it's amazing to see the work and, and we, you know, we were talking earlier about a lot of the, the freedom that 
is there. It's very fluid. There's a lot of movement that is, um, it, it's surprising how peaceful it comes across as for me. Because you would think when you think about that color palette, I think one of the things that I, when we first uh, were talking the other day, so I was imagining all of those neon colors that I'd seen at doofs and festivals. Yeah. And, but then when you see your work, it's not buzzing with that uh, vibrant energy. It's very uh, calm. Yeah. It feels calm. Yeah, I think that comes from, you know, I have made art for doofs in the past <laughs> and it doesn't quite fit in. Like I made a big, massive painting for the Fractangular Gathering down here in Tasmania and, you know, I thought being a full of ego artist that it was going to be great and it was going to fit in right well and that I was making this art for the doof and it was a doof artwork. But then when I went and installed and I looked around, I was kind of like, oh, I completely missed the mark here. Like I've just done the Paul Eggins art, not the art for the doof, but people still loved it. And like, you know, it was great seeing people sit in front of it and then come back four hours later and they're still sitting in front of it. So <laughs> I guess it was doing something right for some people. But yeah, even when I try to do something like that, it just always ends up coming around back to plain old Paul. Well, I, you know, that's not how... I would describe you playing old Paul. Oh, yeah, sorry, what I was getting to is that I've used this palette to do just landscape paintings and I've used this palette to paint portraits and stuff, so I haven't tried to make it fit into any sort of subgenre, but I've played around with it enough now that, yeah, like we was saying, I don't know if it's a confidence thing or a lack of confidence where... <laughs> It's just what I do now. Like it's just that thing and people can take it or leave it. Like I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> and I think. There's freedom in that. Yeah, giving up that care and those preconceived ideas that people will want something. It's like, well, I don't care if they want it. They can have it <laughs> or not. It's up to them. Oh, Paul, how do you shut out the inner critic? I mean, the, the thing that makes, I mean, in my mind, I think it, I think of it as the voice that makes me want to work and rework and rework and then eventually ruin what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I still have that inner critic every now and again, but I just kind of stopped following everything. Like I log onto Facebook and I've unfollowed every single friend and page and stuff, so I just have a blank Facebook page. I've unfollowed everything on Instagram, so I get on Instagram and it's just like ads. I don't have anything <laughs> on. I don't don't have any magazines An coming Instagram in. Instagram of ads. <laughs> oh. I mean, to be fair, I think Instagram is, you know, 90% ads even if they're not sponsored. But it's great doing that because I choose what I look at then. I have complete control. It's like, oh, like this artist popped into my head today. I'm going to go find their Instagram or, oh, this thing happened. I'm going to investigate that myself rather than being shown stuff and constantly comparing myself to everything. Mm. I'm kind of choosing what I take in and I don't take a lot in. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's the key or if that's. <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> but I'm still addicted though. That's the thing. I still go on Instagram every day. I'll still check. Just for the ads? Yeah. I love those ads. <laughs> and it's scary how accurate they are. I know. It's really upsetting. <laughs> Speaking of uh, 
of social media, though, um, where can people find you in the world? Um, I have an Instagram. I have a website, just pauleggins.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I don't do it. <laughs> so if, if you <laughs> add me as a friend, I'll add you, but then I'll just unfollow you instantly. Oh. So. <laughs> I like it that way. I yeah. like it because I still get the events and stuff and I can pick and choose what events I go to, which these days isn't a whole lot. Mm, that's true. That is true. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, thank you for having me on. Very grateful. This was Local. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is produced by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Gordes. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. Yeah, very stock standard, just. <laughs> For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.